0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon.
1: Okay, this morning's scripture readings from Ruth 2, verses 1 through 16. Ruth 2, 1 through 16. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the years of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Ruth 2:1 1-16
0: Good morning. I want to say a happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Uh, we are, uh, hope you have a great day, uh, including my own dad. I don't know if he'll uh, watch it on the DVD we send my mother, but uh, I think he watches in sometimes. So happy Father's Day to you too. Uh, and we do appreciate you, man, for all that you do, and we pray the Lord's blessing on you today and in the year ahead. Uh, we are continuing in Ruth this morning, so open up to your Bibles to chapter two. If you uh, just listened along a moment ago, now's a good time to open to that chapter or find it on the Bible app, something like that as well, will work just as well. And uh, we're going to meet the, the main male character this morning of the book of Ruth. It's called Ruth, but uh, there's a pretty important uh, guy in this story as well, and we're going to spend some time with him this morning. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we get into it. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here today. We thank you uh, for a day, in, uh, kind of an unofficial day, to, to uh, remember dads and think about dads and thank uh, thank them and pray for them and uh, we do do that today we pray for the men in this room that are fathers and maybe who are listening online uh, or dads that you would bless them and keep them help them they have a hard job lord and uh, struggle with lots of uh, doubts and insecurities about it and i just pray your, we pray your blessing on them today and help them and uh, just commit them to you lord uh, we pray for ourselves as we come to this text would you please open our hearts and our minds to receive from you lord there's a lot here Uh, and uh, as we focus on different parts of this, specific parts of this chapter this morning, I pray that you would uh, make this helpful, make this helpful for every one of us in the room as we strive to, uh, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of Christ in us, as we strive to live godly lives, we pray that you will use this to help us do that. May this equip and encourage and point us to Christ as we seek to serve him today. So we thank you, and we look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, a blogger named Leo Babauta wrote a post called The Awesome Dad Cheat Sheet. The Awesome Dad Cheat Sheet. I liked his title, but I liked his subtitle even more. The subtitle to this post was 18 fatherhood tips they should have handed out in the delivery room. And uh, every dad uh, knows exactly what you mean when he hears that, because the baby's born, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. I'm just like in awe, and then it's like, oh my goodness, what now? <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do now? And uh, he, he kind of had a little bit of fun with it. And there were good tips, though, he, these tips he had. Uh, let me just read you a little bit of what he said. He said, being a father can be a wonderful thing uh, once you get past all the gross stuff, all the stressful events, the loss of privacy, and the bewildering number of ways to screw it up. But other than those things, fatherhood is wonderful. Uh, every dad he went on has fears that he won't be a great dad, that he'll mess up, that he'll be a failure. It comes with the job. Uh, unfortunately, what does not come with the job is a simple set of instructions. And that's where his 18 tips came in. And, and he, there were these, he had these 18 ideas that were his suggestion for the, the stuff they should have given us in the delivery room. Uh, I don't know where the guy is coming from spiritually. I couldn't tell one way or the other from the post. But I liked his list. Uh, for example, tip number one was: cherish your time with your children." The years go by," he said. "They really do fly by. It's not just a cliche, so cherish the time with them. Uh, tip number two was, it gets easier. It never gets easy, but it does after a while, after you do it a while, it does get a little easier. Uh, tip number five: uh, kids like making decisions. That's a good one. Kids like making decisions, and it's good for them, too, to learn how to make decisions. So, he said, empower your children in age-appropriate ways to make decisions. Uh, he had a bunch of others. I'm not going to go through the whole list. Keep a sense of humor was one of them. Learn how to say no, uh, that was another one. Uh, it was a good list, like I say. And if anybody wants the article, hit me up. I'll you know, send me a text or an email or something. I'll send you the article. You can read it yourself. I want to add another tip, though. He's got his 18. I want to add another tip, call it tip number 19 for dads. Uh, But it's not just for dads. It is a good tip for dads, and I commend it to you this morning, gentlemen, and I'll make a few applications along the way for those of us who are fathers. But uh, just like I did on Mother's Day, I I talked to moms, but I talked to all of us. Same thing today, because what we're going to talk about this morning isn't just for fathers. Uh, It's a a tip that applies to every one of us. Uh, Tip number 19, if I may, is that we should love others the way God loves us. It's very, very important. We should love God the way God loves us. And that's not to say, we're not setting out a standard here where I'm saying we're going to do it perfectly because God loves perfectly. But what we're saying instead is that the model, the example for how God wants us to love the people in our lives is himself, right? Whatever your role is, God wants us to love other people the way God loves us. Ruth chapter 2 gives us a wonderful example of what this looks like in real life. And the example comes from this man named Boaz. I told you a few weeks ago, we are studying through Ruth here in our church. If you're visiting with us, um, it's kind of at your context. We're studying through this little book this summer. And I, in maybe it was the sermon intro, the series intro, I, I told you that one of the main themes in this book is, is God's love, the love of God. And, and we talked about a, a funny sounding Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is chesed. Uh, and chesed is God's love, it's God quality love, God's sacrificial um, giving of himself, covenantal, faithful love, and so we used the term God's faithful love, and that's one of the big themes in this little book. And, and on that Sunday, I talked about how the Lord shows his faithful love, because there's a lot of uh, examples of how he shows his love in this book. One of the ways we talked about that morning was that he uses people. God uses other people to show his love. And on that Sunday, that, was on, that we were still in chapter 1 then, we focused in on Ruth, right, the, the namesake of the book. We've, and we talked about how Ruth is a beautiful example of God's faithful love lived out through a human being. She shows God-quality love, God-shaped love. She shows it in chapter 1 to her mother-in-law, to this woman, Naomi. But but Ruth's not the only example. She's a great example, but she's not the only example in this book of what it looks like to love the way God loves. Boaz does the same thing. He's the other one in this book. And so what I want to look this morning, we're going to, look at, you're going to use Boaz now to look at what God's love looks like when it's lived out in our lives. So like I said, let's, let's get into Ruth. Let's turn to Ruth. If you didn't already, I've already we, you know, we've given you a chance to, but get, get to it. It's good to see the text because there is a lot of narrative here today. So sometimes you just need to kind of fact check me and check things and write down your questions and so on. So it's good to have it open. And, and as we look at it, I want to... Um, I want to talk about four ways to do this, right? So we're gonna and we're gonna focus on Boaz this morning. In fact, I wanted to say um, I'm, I'm, I am focusing very specifically on Boaz today. Next week, I'm gonna come back to chapter two, and we're gonna cover everything we're covering this morning and finish that chapter. We're gonna do a sweep again through chapter two. So if there's some detail you're like, where you're like, "Hey, you didn't explain this or that," or I really want to know about this thing be patient with me. We'll get there next week. That's my intent. It's a pretty good chance that if I don't answer it today, I'll try to at least try to answer it next week. But, but this morning, I want to focus on Boaz. And I want to talk about four ways that we can love the way God loves by looking specifically at the, uh, at the example of Boaz. So number one, the first way we can love the way God loves is to bless those who are in our care. Right? Bless those who are in our care. And that might be our employees. It might be our students if we're a teacher. It might be our patients if we're a doctor. It might be you know, people who, who work for us. It might be our family members. But whoever they are, bless the people who are in your care. That's a way to love the way God loves. And we see this with Boaz, I, I would argue, throughout the book. But we see it, actually, first time we meet him, this is what we see about this guy. So we, we, the minute we meet him, we see he's the kind of guy who goes around blessing the people who are in his care. So verse 1 uh, in the text, uh, verse 1 tells us that uh, Naomi had a relative. So at the end of the chapter, they're back. They've arrived back from, their, so they're in, from being in Moab. Ruth has come with her. They're, they're, she's back to Bethlehem. Ruth's there for the first time. And there they are. And, and the chapter ends. Now we're informed in verse 1 that Ni- Naomi has a relative named Boaz. Right? And this really should not be a surprise. We know this is where she was from. So of course, she's got relatives here. And so, so, but but we, it's, so there must be a reason we're being told, and the reason is that he's very important as the story unfolds. Uh, he is specifically, you learn later in the book, uh, maybe it says it here, uh, no it doesn't yet, but it will, um... No, it does say it here. It's it's, it's the same clan. It's Elimelech's clan. So the relation is not through Naomi herself. The relationship is through her her now-deceased husband, Elimelech. And we don't know what the connection is, first cousins, second cousins. We have no idea. We're not told what the the actual relationship is. But they're family. It's part of the family. Verse 1 also tells us that Boaz was a worthy man. Another translation says noble. I think the NIV says a man of standing. Right, so he was a, a worthy man of the clan, of the, clan the same clan of, of Elimelech. Which means, what does that mean, he's a worthy man? Well, what it means is that he is a pillar of the community. Right, so he's one of the leaders of the community. That's really the idea. He appears to be wealthy enough. We're not told how wealthy, but he, he, he's a landowner and, and, and uh, you know, has people working for him. So, so he's wealthy enough. That's, that's clear. But what's more important with the word here is that he's a man of excellent reputation. So he's a man of standing. This is the kind of guy, maybe not every year, but at least sometimes, you know, he wins Citizen of the Year award, that kind of thing. He's, he's, he's an upstanding man in this community. He's a man of good refutation. So as you picture Boaz this morning, picture him that way. He's, a, he's, a, he's an influential person in his community. And so then the question becomes, how does he use his influence? How does he use the, the authority and the, that he has? How is he going to conduct himself? Well, in verse 4, we start to explore that. In verse 4, we see him in action for the first time. Uh, he comes out to his fields, one of his fields anyway, to, to check on how the harvest is going. And we know there's a harvest because we read in the last verse of the previous chapter that they arrived back in Bethlehem just as the harlot, barley harvest was getting started, which is kind of late spring by our, the way we would measure things. So it's kind of that, actually right around now, maybe a little earlier from now. <clears throat> So he arrives, or he he comes out to the fields, and you get this picture of this guy. He comes out, and he's like, the Lord be with you. And and it's it's a call. It's a call out to his guys. The Lord be with you, he says to the crew. And they answer right back. They're like, the Lord bless you too, Boaz. So you have this kind of call and response, sort of a cheerful exchange that goes on as he comes out. Now, it seems a little strange to us. I don't know if when you, you, know, if you go to work you do that or if you do that with your boss or however that works, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, what, what's going on here? But I think what we're given here is a, a glimpse, a glimpse of his character and how the people who are in his care experience him and, and how he interacts with them, right? He comes out to the fields and he blesses his crew. He blesses them. He, and he, specifically, it's the Lord's blessing. So the Lord bless you, he says. And for their part they give it right back to him, right? So it's like, you know, there, there's no sense of, you know, uh-oh, here comes Boaz, you know, look busy, here he comes, you know, <laughs> there's, there's none of that. Instead, they're, they're as glad to see him as as he was to see them, right? So they call right back, and the Lord bless you, right? The Lord be with you, the Lord bless you, this this cheerful exchange. And, and I know it's a, it's a feels like a minor detail. You kind of read it and you're like, move me on to the good stuff. Let's get to the romance or whatever, you know, whatever part of the story you want to get to. But I think this is very important as we're introduced to Boaz this way. This is the kind of guy he is. He spreads blessing everywhere he goes. And especially, you know, and it's especially in, in this context, it's to the people who are, are in his charge who are under his care. And that's very much how the, the, the men who are working for him and the women, we learn he's got servant girls out in the harvest too. It's a... Um, equal opportunity uh, project, the harvest is. And, and so he comes out and he blesses them. And, and I think this is a great example for us, right? We, really very excellent example. When we arrive, right? when we arrive on the job site, or we come into the office, or we, we come home from work at the end of the day, or we get home from school at the end of the day, uh, we, we ought to make it our goal to be like Boaz. Right? And that doesn't mean you got to kind of do the, you know, the Lord bless you, everybody. You know, it might feel a little artificial to do it that way in our context. But, but the point is, uh, more than those, those words you see here, it's the attitude. It's the atmosphere that he sets. That's what God's people bring with them, right? We, people should feel blessed when we walk through the door, right? They, they should feel glad when our name pops up on the caller ID, not kind of, uh-oh, what does he want, you know? That we, we, there, there's this, that's this idea That's a way to love the way God loves Is to be people of blessing that way And I'll speak to my fellow fathers Dads, this, this one's an especially important one for us um, Really at any age that our kids are at But I was thinking about that age When you know, my, my children are all out of the house now But I think back, you know, that 10, 15 years ago That's such a crucial age and you know, I know some of you are in that situation now Right? You know, and maybe, and again, I know this isn't everybody's you know, situation, different families are organized differently, but, but if you're in a situation where you go off to, to work in some way or another and your wife stays home with the kids and the household's kind of there and you go out and you come back again after a, a day of work, you know, what, what, what do you bring with you? Right? Or whatever your schedule's like, slot it in in your own schedule. What do you bring with you when you come back? Do, do you bring a, a, a dark cloud of the day's troubles? Or do you bring a blessing? Is there a blessing you bring to your family? And likewise, again, for the workplace, for for church when we come, what all these different things, what do we bring with us when we come? God, it's a a way we can love the way he loves. We can bring blessing to those who are in our care. So that's number one. Number two that we see in this text. Uh, Second way we can love the way God loves is to protect those who are vulnerable. Protect those who are vulnerable. This is where Ruth comes in. Now we begin to talk about Ruth more concertedly. Uh, Up until now, this is now the fourth sermon in this series, and I'm sure some of you are like, are we ever going to talk about Ruth? (laughs) The book's named after Ruth, and we've mostly only talked about her tangentially. But now at this point, she she moves to the center stage in this early part of chapter 2. Let's let's look at verse 2 here, and we'll spend a lot more time with Ruth next week, like I say, as we sweep through chapter 2 a second time. But but look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, She said to her, Go, my daughter. Verse 3 2. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The key here in verse 2, especially, is that Ruth seizes the initiative. Right, she seizes the initiative. She asks her mother-in-law for permission to go out into the fields. And actually, from what we understand, they weren't. They kind of all flowed together. The fields did, and so that's why it kind of says the part of the field. Um, they knew where the markers were, but we might look at it and think it all was one huge field. But but they knew the parts. So she's going to go out, and uh, what she wants to do is she wants to go out to the fields and glean. She wants to glean. Which makes us ask, what is that? What does it mean to glean the fields? What does that word mean? Most simply, glean means to gather or to collect. And, you know, you could read a good book and glean some ideas for, you know, retirement or for your business, right? You could glean. Glean simply means to collect something. In this context, it means to collect the crops. And so in this context, actually, technically, what it was was to collect the leftover crops from the fields after the harvest has gone through so first you do the harvest and then there's always some left right especially in that context there's always some left and they they go through and so gleaning was to go through after the harvesters had done their job and pick up the stuff that's left in the ancient world this was this actually functioned this whole process of gleaning functioned as one of the ways they had to care for the poor So it was one of the ways their societies would care for for the poor. The poor were allowed to go through the fields, and they still had to do the work. They had to do the work themselves, but they were allowed to go through the fields and collect what the harvesters missed. And the focus was especially on the edges and the corners, so the, the roundabout, the part outside the outer part of the fields, although they would also have permission to go through after everything was done to go through the centers of the field and collect whatever they could. But those edges and the corners were especially set apart for the gleaners. Uh, this is actually in Scripture. This comes from Scripture. Uh, you might remember it, Leviticus 19. It's one of the, the, the part of the law of Moses. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. God speaking says, When you reap the harvest of your land, uh, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. And then he roots it in his own character. For I am the Lord your God. You do this because I'm God, he says. That's, that's the biblical command to make, uh, make provision for the, for the process of gleaning. Ruth knows about this whole thing. Nobody had to explain it to her. You see that in verse two. She wants to just go do it. Um, She knows about gleaning. Uh, She's been in the Elimelech family because she married one of his sons. She's probably heard about how it works in Israel. But the truth is they did it in Moab too. Gleaning wasn't something that was exclusive to the Israelites. The different ancient Near Eastern cultures had their own ways of doing it. And so she knows what gleaning is. They get here and she goes to Naomi and she says, let me go. Let me go out into the fields to do the gleaning. A couple of things to note here about this request. First, it shows us something about Ruth. It shows us that Ruth is determined to provide for herself and Naomi. So when we left Naomi at the end of the last chapter, there was, there was kind of hopeless feeling, wasn't it? You know, She comes back, you know, call me Mara, call me bitter, she says, my life's a misery. Uh, she's not in a great place. You almost get, it doesn't use these words, but you kind of have the sense that Naomi's kind of given up a little bit there at the end of, the, of, of chapter 1. But not Ruth. Ruth's not giving up. She's like, all right, let's hit this thing. Let's go. You know, she, she's ready to go do something. So she goes to her mother-in-law. And she says, let me go get us some food. Let me go glean in the fields. So it shows us, uh, you get just another one of these glimpses of Ruth as a, a, a strong woman, someone who's going to go after it, someone who's going to do what needs to be done. The second thing her request shows us is that Naomi and Ruth are economically vulnerable. They are vulnerable. Why? Because gleaning is for the poor that's who gleans so when they came back to bethlehem uh naomi didn't have a safe deposit box with money in it from when they used to live there 10 years ago there was nothing waiting for them they seem to have a place to live that doesn't seem to be an issue but otherwise there's there there's nothing waiting for them so they come back and they're poor they're poor Uh, and so so they're poor but, but that's really just the beginning of the vulnerability that Ruth, uh, that Ruth is experiencing in this situation. I want to spend a few minutes showing you how vulnerable Ruth is. Ruth is poor, and so is Naomi. The two of them are poor together. But on top of that, Ruth is a foreigner. And our text, you, you probably caught it yourself, the text keeps reminding us that she's a foreigner. It's almost like lest we forget, you know. And so verse 2, Ruth the Moabite, Verse 6, one of the servants says, the young Moabite woman is over there. You know, verse 10, Ruth comes up to Boaz. She says, I'm a foreigner. Right, it's keeping emphasized to us again and again, which means she's doubly eligible for gleaning. If you caught, caught it in that verse from Leviticus 19, leave the gleanings for the poor and the foreigner. Right, the, the the person from somewhere else. So she's doubly vulnerable, right? So that's who. You know, so she's so she's vulnerable because she's poor. She's vulnerable because she's from another country and doesn't know the place. But it gets worse for Ruth because she's not just doubly vulnerable. She's triply vulnerable. I'm not sure if that's a word, but her, her vulnerability is, is tripled. And the reason here is that she is a young woman who is unmarried and fatherless. She's unmarried and fatherless. You say, well, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because she's got nobody to protect her. And this is very important in her culture. It'll stand out more in chapter 3 when we start talking about this covering idea that comes up. And she's going to ask, eventually, she'll ask Boaz to extend his covering over her. But but she is unprotected as an unmarried, uh, in this case, widowed woman whose father isn't around. It's a patriarchal society that she lives in, which means that she as a woman was dependent on the primary man in her life to protect her. And so if she was a single woman, uh, that would be her father. If she was a married woman, that would be her husband. And as we know at this point, she has neither. Her husband has died Um, Her father-in-law, who actually maybe would be the next line of resort when her husband dies, uh, he's already gone. So she has no husband. She has no father-in-law. And as far as her own father goes, we actually don't know for sure. It does seem like he's still alive because of something Boaz is going to say. But even if he is still alive, he's not here. He's far away. He's 100 miles away in Moab. And so he's of no help to her either. And so Ruth is a vulnerable person. She's vulnerable uh, because, because she's an unmarried woman, unmarried, uh, basically the, the equivalent of, an, of, a, of a widowed orphan is, is what she is. So that also makes her vulnerable. And there's one more on top of all of that. She lives in the days of the judges. The context, the historical context matters a lot to this point. I, I think it was the first sermon in the series, I talked about uh, the, the period of the Judges, the book of Ruth happens in that last, it really, it happens about 300 years into that 400 year period that's chronicled in the book of Judges. And the thing about the period of the Judges is that it is one of the most violent periods, most violent, chaotic periods in the history of Israel. And it was very violent. You can read through the book of Judges and you you see exactly what I mean, including violence against women. And we're not going to take the time to read it this morning, but but close to the end of Judges, there's an ugly story. And that story forms the context for the book of Ruth. There's an ugly story near the end of Judges about a woman who is sexually assaulted and then murdered, brutally murdered, and it's because, it's very clear in that story, it's because the men in her life, starting with her own husband, won't protect her. They refuse to protect her. Instead, they just protect themselves and they, they attack her. And that, it's not in this book, but it's in, the, it's in the time she lives in. That's the kind of world Ruth lives in. She lives in a violent, dangerous world. So she's poor, she's a foreigner, she's an unprotected woman, living at a time when it is a very dangerous time to be a woman at all. Thankfully... And that's one of the beautiful messages of Ruth. And it's one that helps us. It gives us hope in our living in our own troubled times. Thankfully, there were still men like Boaz. Thanks be to God, there were still men like Boaz. Boaz doesn't even know Ruth. He doesn't know her yet. He, he's, he's heard about her, we learn in verse 11, uh, but, but he doesn't know her personally. And yet in this text, he's going to take concrete steps to, to protect her and take care of her. And, and let me just focus on the protection piece first. The protection, the, other, the, the take care of her part comes in the other two points. But, but where you see really the, the protection is in verse 9. He says to her, so he comes up, he's like, who's the the woman waiting over there? They tell her she's the Moabite, and he goes and he talks with her. And and one of the many things he says to her is, have I not charged the young men? And he's talking about his own servants, his crew. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Now, on the one hand, uh, he simply means, haven't I told them to let you work, right? Haven't I told them don't stop you from gleaning? So that's when he says, I, I've told them not to touch you. That's part of it. We're going to let you glean here. But given the historical context, I believe there's a whole other layer to that here. See, Boaz, he's, he's, a, he's a cheerful man. He brings blessing, but he's also a wise man. He's savvy, and he knows human nature. And so, yeah, he's got a good crew, but he still goes to them. He says, hey, guys, you, you respect that young woman. You, you treat her with respect, hands off. I know she's a foreigner. None of you know her, but hands off. You treat her with respect. And it's not because he's trying to keep her for himself, right? You kind of know where the story ends up, and you're like, well, he's just trying to protect her for himself. No, no, no. He hasn't even met her yet when he says this, right? That we haven't gotten to the romance part of the story yet. He does this because that's the sort of man Boaz is, right? We were already told in verse 1, he's a worthy man. He's a noble man. He's the sort of person who loves people the way God loves. That's what we find here, including, including in his treatment of Ruth, including protecting the vulnerable. We're called to live the same way. It's part of the Christian calling. God wants his people to love the way he loves by protecting the vulnerable, by protecting the vulnerable in our own worlds. I'll talk to dads again. Dads, if, if, if you're a father, that starts with your family. Right? It really does. And you know this, right? It starts with our children, our wives. You know, part of your job as a dad is to protect the people in your own house. And we could talk about a lot of things. That I could probably talk for a half hour now. All the different ways we need to protect our families. And, and more broadly, we could talk about you know, uh, taking care of the poor and, and fighting racism and all these kinds of things that are all would also come under the part of this. But, but I was just thinking about dads this week with Father's Day coming up. You know, there's just so many different ways it's important for us to protect our families. Uh, let me give you one example. I'll just give you one. We need to protect them from the Internet, I don't know what I was reading that had me thinking about it this week. I can't remember, but we really do need to protect our kids. Some of the stuff out there uh, on, the, on the web, some of the people out there uh, on the Internet, some of the stuff that's out there, it makes the book of Judges look like a Dr. Seuss book in comparison. Awful, awful stuff that our kids can get exposed to. Dangerous, predatory stuff. Some of it's very overt, and you think of things like pornography and violence and stuff like that, but some of it's more subtle and kind of flying in under the radar and deceiving them and, and stuff like that. Dangerous stuff. Dangerous stuff. And, and so we can't just hand our kids a phone or put them in front of a computer and say, hey, keep yourself busy. We can't do that. We, you might as well hand them a bottle of bleach and say, have a drink if you're thirsty. But No, we, we need to protect them. And, and guys, we need to protect ourselves too on this issue. We can't protect our kids and our, our wives if we're not protecting ourselves on this one. And so uh, that, that's a, it's a way, it's a very concrete way. I wanted to give us something concrete to think about. something It's a way to protect those who are, who are vulnerable. But again, uh, this isn't just for dads. This is a principle for, for all of us, men and women alike and of every age. We all need to have this mindset about us, right? We, the Lord wants us to love the way he loves by protecting protecting those who are vulnerable. If you're a student, that might mean standing up for someone who's, who's being bullied at school. That would be a way to protect the vulnerable. Maybe it's, it's coming to the rescue of that person in the office that everyone else likes to gossip about behind their back. Maybe that's a way we protect the vulnerable. Maybe, as I say, it has to do with uh, the different things we do to, to, to champion uh, the poor and make sure people are cared for in, in appropriate ways and, and all of those kinds of things. Lots and lots of ways to do this, but the point is it's, it's a way to love. It flows out of God's own heart to protect those who are vulnerable. Number three, a third way we can love the way God loves is to welcome those who are alone. Welcome those who are alone. That's part of it, too. Uh, We can love the way God loves by showing hospitality, to use that word. Hospitality, by welcoming the lonely. Boaz does this one, too. In the way in this chapter Uh, Within his cultural context I'll show you what I mean Within his context He actually goes out of his way To invite Ruth into community It's very popular these days To talk about being in community Even people outside of churches Are talking about the importance of community And people want community Um, Boaz was doing that way before it was cool He's inviting Ruth into community Uh, Why do I say that? Well think about her situation again Uh, We talked about how Ruth is vulnerable Right? She's a vulnerable person because of her, her status on all these different, different levels. But, but let's think about this too. I think she would just be lonely. Right? She's just lonely. The text doesn't say Ruth was lonely, but just look at her situation as described. She's got to be lonely. <clears throat> she's a foreigner. Right? She's, she's come from Moab, which means she's new to Bethlehem. When Naomi came back, there were people who were like, is this really you? Right? They, people knew Naomi. Nobody knows Ruth. Ruth's got nobody here. She's got one social connection. Her one social connection is her depressed and bitter mother-in-law that's it. That, that's, her, that's her party night, right? That, that's who she gets together with. And it's not like she can hang out with Naomi's friends. It's pretty clear those, those relationships are a little strange too, right? Ten years away, it's pretty obvious those relationships are stale. And so socially speaking, Ruth comes to this new place, foreign place. She's never been here before. She's heard about it from, from her, her now deceased husband, but she's never been here, and she's all alone. Now look at what Boaz does. Look what he does to help her with this situation. And he does two things in particular that stand out on this welcoming idea. First of all, he, he tells her to work with his female servants. All right, you see that in verse eight. Keep close to my young women, he says. Stay here with my servant girls. Now, here's, I think we need to understand a little bit of how this works to appreciate what, how this, why that's significant. The, uh, the men would go through, so they're harvesting barley, and I imagine they've got some kind of a sickle sort of a thing and they're they're doing it by hand and they're they're getting sheaves of it and they're bundling it up and they're putting in probably carts i would imagine or maybe they let it fall to the ground i don't know all the details of how they did it in that time period but but you've got the men going through they're doing the first pass now then uh, his own servants right there are women also helping the servant girls come through behind the men and maybe maybe that's what they're doing maybe they're tying up the bundles and and so the the men are coming through on the first pass the women the, the female servants are coming through on the second pass and, he, and the gleaners, the gleaners aren't really part of this. The gleaners are, remember Leviticus, they're supposed to stay on the edges. And then after the workers are gone, they can come through the fields and get anything that the harvesters and the servant girls have missed. Boaz tells Ruth to come join his servant girls. So he doesn't say, you stay over there by yourself on the edges. He brings her in with his own servant girls. So what has he done? He has just connected her in fellowship with other women her own age, right? And she was tired of just sitting around listening to Naomi complain. Now she's got some, some young women. She can sit around and listen to them complain if they want to do so. But, but she's got connections at her own level. So, so again, it's, it's, I don't think it's the main reason. Actually, there's another reason he does that, which I'll get to in the last point, but he connects her to community. But then second, he also shows hospitality when he invites her to come dine with the crew. Right? It's in verse 14. Uh, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat. And so she came and she sat among the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. Again, it's a, a beautiful picture of hospitality. She's a stranger. More than a stranger, she's a foreigner. More than a foreigner, she's a foreigner from a people that the Israelites don't get along with so well, the Moabites. No one would have blamed her if he had just said, here, bring the... You know. he could have, it would have been nice if he had... Put a, put a plate of some food and said, go bring that to her over there in the corner. No one would have blamed him if he'd done that. In fact, they would have seen that as even going further than he had to go. But no, he, he invites her to come join everybody else. He brings her over, come eat what we're eating. And on top of that, he, the boss, uh, serves her. He serves her himself, right? He passed to her roasted grain, the cooked stuff. They'd been, cooked it right there. It's hospitality. It's hospitality thinking about our own world. People who pay attention to this sort of thing say that uh, the United States is uh, in the midst of a, a, an epidemic of loneliness. Have you heard anybody talk about this? It's, you know, it's popping up in different places. Sociologists are talking about it. You'll see articles in the newspapers, stuff online is talking about it. Uh, P- Americans are lonely. A lot of loneliness. It's a big problem in our culture. It's kind of driving some of the drug epidemic. It's driving a lot of different things. And, and again, I'm not a sociologist. We will we'll skip all the analysis. What it comes down to is people are alone. Lots and lots of people feel lonely and isolated in the culture in which you and I live right now. And you know what? It's even true here. It's even true in, in small-town America, where you know everybody, or you know many people anyway, and you can't go to the store without running into three or four people you know. Even in places like this, what they're finding is people feel isolated and alone. I believe that that might be one of our greatest opportunities in the days in which we live right now, because you've got to live in your own times. We don't live in these times. We live in these times. And I believe that loneliness epidemic may be one of the best opportunities we have to show the love of God to different people. We can show God's love to people by, by welcoming them, by, by living out that hospitality that we see commanded and, and modeled in Scripture. Uh, we can welcome people into our churches. We can welcome them into our, our families, into our homes, into our lives, into our activities. All these different ways we can, we can just welcome people, just invite them to come and, and be part of our lives and enter into their lives too. It's a way to show God's love. It's not just a way to you know, make a, a local, a small town thrive. It's a way to show God's love. It's a way to love the way God loves. Welcome those who are alone. Finally, finally the, the fourth way in this text that we can love the way God loves is by being generous to those who are in need. And obviously there's some overlap here in these last three, but I wanted to tease this one out separately. Uh, we can love the way God loves by being generous to those who have need. Ruth is a strong woman. I want us to to appreciate that. She's a strong woman, but she has lots of need. She has lots of need. And we already talked about how she has nobody to protect her. But being uh, vulnerable the way she is also means she has no one to provide for her. So she has no one to protect her. She also has no one to provide for her. She's a widow. She's an orphan. She's a foreigner. Really, all she's got going for her is her health. She seems to be a pretty healthy woman. There's never any hint of anything to the contrary. So she's got that. She can get out and she can work. But other than that, she is the definition of economic neediness. She, she's poor. She's, she's the definition of economic neediness in her society. If she, was, if she had some kind of a disability or physical problem, that would, that would add to it. But other than that, that's, that's where she's at. And that need, this woman's need... Compels it really it, it becomes the motivator for Boaz's generosity generosity here in chapter two. Some people let me, let me talk about chapter two for a minute. Some people try to read romance into this part of the story, right? So so if, you know we know where the story's going to go. We know they're going to get married eventually, and so people try to read backwards into chapter two and say, well, this is romance. I don't think that's right, right? At this point in the story, the way Boaz treats this woman has nothing to do with romance, right? Boaz is not generous in chapter two because he thinks Ruth is pretty. That's not what it is. He is generous because he is a noble, worthy man who exudes the love of God. He's a man. That's why it's so important that we meet him in verse 4, bringing blessing. This is the kind of guy Boaz is. He exudes the love of God in all sorts of ways. We see this in his generosity. Uh, He is generous. He goes above and beyond. I'm going to show you how. He goes above and beyond in his generosity to Ruth. And in being generous to Ruth, he knows he's also being generous to, to Naomi. He knows that's how it works. Let me show you how generous he is. And and at the same time, you see how awesome Ruth is. Ruth comes, and uh, and in verse 7, a a bold request is reported. Actually, the servant, one of his servants, one of Boaz's servants reports what she did. When she came out to the field, she asked to glean among the reapers. She wants to glean among the reapers rather than on the edges of the field. That's what that means. Why would she want to do that? Because the grain is better there. Right, so you see her boldness, her strength. She wants to, she's going she's gonna to go for the gusto here. So she asks for permission to glean among the reapers, uh, which means she wants to be in among those servants. She wants to be exactly where he puts her eventually. She wants to be in among the, the servant girls gathering what's been left so that she can keep it for herself. She can't do this until the owner of the field gives her permission to do so. Why? Because that's his The outer portions on the edges, God said that belongs to the poor. The gleanings belonged to the poor by God's command. The rest of the field belongs to the owner of the field. And so Ruth is asking for a portion of what the owner has. And Boaz gives it to her. Right? He, he could have easily said, no, no, that's, that's, that's my pockets she's trying to pick here, keep her out on the edges. But instead, he gives her permission to come in among, uh, among his own ser- servants. He's, he's, letting her, he's letting her take money out of his own pocket. He's, he's giving out of his own, sir. He's not giving out of his extra. He's not giving somebody else's. Uh, he's giving her his own. But that's just the beginning of his generosity. He also offers her water. He gives her access to the crew's water. That's in verse 9. That is a big deal, right? She didn't come with a water bottle. She probably brought a little, but uh, that's a big deal in a culture where water is a scarcity. And so it's another instance of generosity. Uh, He then offers or actually invites her to glean exclusively in his own fields. Again, this is above and beyond her request. That's not what she asked for, but that's what he gives her. And, and partly this goes back to number two. It goes back to the protection thing. He knows he can protect her from his own men, but he can't vouch for the other crews. And so he says, you stay here, but it's also generosity. Again, you could see kind of like, you know, you see the beggar on the street. well, I'll give you a five, but I'm not giving you this 20. He gives the 20 in this instance, right? He, he's, he says, he's, you stay and you, you follow with my people until the harvest is over. So so he does that too. He then invites her to dinner. We kind of talked about that one before. Come sit with my crew, right? Uh, And uh, we'll eat what we're eating. Very generous gesture, along with the hospitality there. And then when the meal is over, the the command to his own crew to let her keep gleaning is repeated. And so it's not just a half-day thing. Let her keep being alongside our own crew gathering my portion as the owner. Let her keep doing that. And then look what he says. Uh, he says, it's verse 16. He says, and when, you, when you're going along, leave her a little extra, all right? Take out some extra. So it's almost, it's a little hard to picture, but you know, if Ruth is behind you, just kind of get, grab some extra and leave it for her to be able to gather it up. And so don't be stingy with her. Make sure that she gets as much as she can pick up. The result of all this is that she goes home with a lot of barley, I'll read it. It's verse 17. It's the next verse. Uh, so she gleaned in the field until evening. She was doing this collecting until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, an ephah of barley. So she had an ephah of uh, processed barley. That's what the beaten out idea means. And so it's not, there's not, this, this, this ephah is not filled with stalks and stuff. The, the grain, the barley grain has been separated from it. So she's got an ephah of, uh, of processed barley. It's not threshed yet, but it's processed. See, how much is that? What's an ephah? Anybody know? <laughs> an ephah is just under a bushel. So it's a, let's just call it a bushel. She has a bushel of uh, hand-processed barley. Now, that's not much by our standards, I know. You guys, you get a bushel in like 30 seconds with the machinery we have these days. But in her context, in her context, that's a lot of barley. A a bushel of barley is enough grain to feed Ruth and Naomi for two weeks. So for one person, it would be a month's worth of food for two people, and she went to gather for two, for two people. That one day's work is enough, is uh, two weeks' worth of food which is what, again, we don't have the context always for this, but that's much more than a typical gleaning. Gleaning, you're, you're getting the leftovers, you're getting the extras. And so this is much more than the typical take um, from a day's work of gleaning. And so Boaz, all of that, that verse 17, which we just kind of scratch our heads and say, what's an ephah? Verse 17 is, you might as well put up like a big billboard with flashing lights that says, look how generous Boaz was. Look at how generously he treated this young woman. God calls us to live the same way. The Lord calls us to live with that same mindset. As as far as this part goes, right? I know a lot has changed from 3,000 years ago, but as far as this part goes, nothing's changed. The Lord Jesus still calls his people to love the way he loves by being generous. And and, and that's a, a general principle, which I think would apply across the board. We could look at dozens of verses where God calls us to have open and generous hearts. But in this text, what you really see it is with this needy, vulnerable woman. And so he especially calls us to be generous to those who have needs of different kinds. So that's another way. Uh, 1 John, 1 John 4, verse 19 says that we love because he first loved us. Right? We love because God first loved us. And that's, you know, from a different angle, that's what we've said this morning. We should love the way God loves us. We should love others the way God loves us. We love because he first loved us. Uh, to my fellow fathers, I encourage you to lean into this one. Right? We, we all need motivation. We need help. We need props. How do, I, how do I do what I'm called to do as a dad? Use this one. Make it your aim to love your family the way God loves you. Bless them. Protect them. Uh, comfort them when they're hurting, that whole idea of welcoming, you know, be a a, a comforter, Uh, be generous uh, appropriately when your your children have needs, Uh, be patient, right? We can expand beyond just these four. Be patient, be forgiving, be gentle strive to love this way. Let us strive to love this way because that's how God loves us. Let us, it's, it's the golden rule, do unto others as, as you would have done unto you. God has done unto us, now let us do unto others. Uh, but then of course, like I said, and I'll close with this, this isn't just for dads. I don't want anybody feeling left out this morning. This is not just a principle for fathers. This is for all of us. This, this core principle. If you belong to Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, make it your aim to love others the way God loves you. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for how much you love us. And boy, do you love us. You are so kind. You are so generous. You are patient. You are forgiving. You are forbearing. You are generous. Uh, you are kind. You are merciful. Uh, we could go on and on and on. And we thank you for that. And uh, we just thank you for your love. We thank you that you are a, the, the perfect father and have showered your fatherly love, uh, your kindness upon us. We praise you for that and thank you. And we pray that you would help us as we go about our business, uh, in, our, in, our, in the workplace, in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, in our friendships, uh, in our dating relationships, whatever, we're, we're all in these different places, but wherever we're at, Lord, help us to, to love this way, not by our own standard, but by the standard you show us in Scripture, to love the way you, God, the way you love God. We can't do that on our own. We certainly don't have the, uh, the capacity in and of ourselves, but your spirit who resides within us, you can do it. And so we pray that you would cause your love to overflow through us. It's in Jesus' name we dare to ask that. Amen.